Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. Also joining us today is Kelly Dobso. Kelly, how are you? I'm pretty good. I'm excited to be here. So on today's show, an order by the Trump administration tasked governors with deciding whether refugees could be settled in their states. Trump's order is now being fought in court, and the Kemp administration will not say whether Georgia will join more than 40 other states in allowing refugees to be resettled in Georgia. So we're going to talk about where that policy stands on refugee resettlement and that pending decision for Governor Kemp. Then we are now less than two weeks away until the first actual votes in the Democratic presidential primary. So let's check in on where the Democratic primary stands. We just finished the final debate before votes will start last week. There were some fireworks to talk about there, and we're going to talk about the kind of support that each candidate has. Uh, But first, let's start with refugee resettlement here. So as we've discussed before, the Trump administration has waged an assault on immigration on many different fronts the travel ban from early in his administration, family separations at the border, demonizing people fleeing violence in Central America, penalizing access to public benefits. It's a lot. It's been a lot. But one avenue that has received less discussion has been the issue of refugee resettlement. And that's in issues where governors like Georgia's Brian Kemp were given some authority to restrict immigration. So let's discuss where the U.S. stands on refugee resettlement and why decisions about resettlement may be within the purview of governors, although they may not be. That's what we're going to talk about. But Kelly, can you just sort of set the table for us here and tell our listeners what refugee resettlement even is? Sure. So the legal definition of a refugee, first off, is somebody who is fleeing their country of origin and they cannot return because of a couple different reasons. So it can be a fear of persecution, um, and that can be on the basis of race, religion, nationality, you know, being in a particular social group, ethnicity, or even like your political opinion. And so more specifically, this is when they flee their country of origin and they go to a nearby country in order to seek temporary refuge. So they basically are living in a refugee camp and awaiting resettlement into a third country. Within this, they have to apply, go and undergo a lot of screenings, um, which this takes years to do as well. So where this comes in is refugee resettlement is when a refugee is accepted into that third country. So in the sake of this context, we'll talk about the United States. So when a refugee is accepted and brought into the United States, the refugees are placed with resettlement organizations. The United States has a couple of them, and these work with the uh, State Department in order to help these refugees and get them assisted. It gives them a little bit of social benefits, such as, um, you know, food stamps or applying for basic health care. And then these resettlement agencies also further assist them by finding apartments, jobs, you know, it's basically just getting themselves adjusted to life here, um, just so we just don't accept them and let them do whatever. And basically, like, give them a path of success within the United States and a way to rebuild their life and start a new life here. So, Kelly... I've heard the term asylum seeker used a lot, as well as the term refugee. Would you mind differentiating that for me and our listeners? 
Absolutely. So this is a topic that comes up a lot, um, especially within the past year with, you know, all the asylum seekers at the southern border um, applying to get into the United States. A refugee, again, is somebody who's being persecuted within their country of origin. They go to a refugee camp nearby in another country and they have to apply from that other country to be able to seek refuge and become a refugee and be resettled within a third country, which is where they will stay. However, an asylum seeker is somebody who comes to the United States. Again, they are fearing persecution for a number of reasons. But the difference, the main difference between us is that asylum seekers, it happens on the United States territory and not in a secondary country. Gotcha. Thank you. Kelly, this is a pressing issue, not only because of decisions on policy and, and the the direction of our politics here in the United States, but because refugees by their very nature are fleeing persecution in their home countries. Are there more refugees or people who are seeking refugee status around the globe today? And if there are, what is driving that increase around the globe? Yeah, so I think there's a bunch of different reasons. It's mainly focused between two different sections. So what is classified as a refugee now are more of the persecutions driven by these conflicts that happen throughout the world um, and also the rise of nationalism and nationalist movements. So, for example, you see a lot of refugees coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo. They just had a recent civil war and there's been a lot of violence that has still been a result of it. So we see a lot of refugees because of that. Again, another one with civil war is Syria. The United States doesn't intake, doesn't take in Syrian refugees, but there's a massive influx of Syrian refugees throughout the world. Um, and you see that especially in Turkey. But also, you know, there's a lot of other countries such as Afghanistan where there's a Taliban and that's influencing a ton of people's lives and putting their lives at risk. Probably the most widespread example that we can see too is the rise of religious movements. So you see that in the Rohingya Muslims within Burma or Myanmar where they are being oppressed and they have to flee because they're being persecuted on the basis of their religion. However, something that is not included within the refugee definition the legal definition with the United States is climate refugees, which is going to become an increasing problem as time progresses if we don't do something about climate change. This basically is going to affect those who live closer to the equator and near bodies of water, such as um, as we see in South America, or there's small little island countries throughout um, Asia who are already experiencing this now. And within a couple of years, their country is going to be underwater or mostly underwater. So we are seeing a lot of people having nowhere to go or, you know, the weather is getting so extreme where it's causing wildfires or it's causing extreme drought and they can't feed themselves because they can't grow food. So we're seeing this become more common. And I think over the couple next couple of years or decades, we'll see this increase dramatically, which is also another factor as well. So these are people who are fleeing very dire straits in their own country, whether it's how they're treated by their government or people in power in the country in which they live, or whether they're dealing with climate change and in the future destruction that will be caused by that if, if the globe doesn't get its act together. Megan, what duty do you think the United States owes refugees who are fleeing these kinds of conditions? And historically, have we been a nation that has been open to accepting these people into resettling into our country? So to answer the second part of the question first, I would say that the answer to that is sort of. 
Um, I would say that the numbers for that definitely vary depending on who is who our president is and who is in leadership. For example, the numbers have gone down under President Trump as opposed to where they were under the Obama administration. Um, as far as do we owe them anything, I think that as a nation that has a history of being built by immigrants, um, while refugees and immig immigrants are not quite the same thing by definition, the idea is the same, right? They're coming to this country to create a better life for themselves. And so I think that based on our own history, based on how the country came to be, the United States of America as we know it today, then we need to honor that and we should be accepting people into our country as well as it's just the right thing to do from a humanitarian standpoint, from a religious standpoint, you know, it, you're supposed to help your neighbor. You're supposed to be kind to people in need. And these people are in need. Therefore, we should help them because we have the resources to do so. Yeah. And typically that has been the prevailing opinion in our politics on the subject of refugees. I mean, the U.S. has historically led the world in refugee resettlement. Um, you know, the total of number of refugees may not seem all that high. The refugee cap in the final year of the Obama administration was 110,000 people. That cap has been cut to this fiscal year being only 18,000. Uh, that cap was cut pretty significantly, almost immediately by the Trump administration. They reduced the total number to 30,000 and then reduced it again to 18. Um, that has resulted in Canada actually surpassing the United States in the total number of refugees that are admitted to their country. And Canada is a country that has a tenth the number of people that the United States has. They have a twelfth the size of the economy that the United States has. They definitely, I think, are punching above their weight in terms of being able, being open in their country to accepting people fleeing these kinds of conditions. Um, but let's contextualize this down to Georgia a little bit, uh, because you know, we've talked about this in the context of the United States as a nation being willing to accept refugees. Newly under the Trump administration, Trump signed an executive order that allowed states to refuse to accept refugees. Basically, every state, um, and I believe significant local governments too, places where lots of refugees were resettled, um, had to affirmatively consent to having refugees being resettled in their communities or in their state because of this executive order. And if they didn't affirmatively consent to that, that refugees were going to have to be resettled in different locations. Kelly, what is some of the context for Georgia here in terms of where refugees go and and this decision that was facing Governor Kemp? The majority of refugees that are accepted within Georgia they tend to go to Clarkson, Georgia, which is a little bit east of Atlanta. This has been become, or Clarkson, Georgia has become such a diverse place. Um, and they have really been intaking refugees since the 1980s. So it's become a massive place just for refugee resettlement because a lot of refugee resettlement agencies are located there. There's a lot of religious groups, stuff like that. And so with that, within Clarkson, Georgia, there's really just been developed a massive culture there that is extremely diverse. Um, it actually is home to over about 60 languages or so. And so these people have been living there for over 40 years now. Um, and so a lot of these places, or a lot of these people have had kids. They're first or second generation Americans. And they've actually started a life and stayed in Clarkson, Georgia, and they've opened businesses. So 
these refugees that are being resettled here, um, they're making a living for themselves and they're improving, you know, their life around them. And they're really bringing back, putting back into the United States and developing, you know, their environment even more. And of course, also, these refugees are essential for a lot of the local businesses as well because they get jobs there. Um, they are the employees of a lot of the restaurants around. Um, and they also do a lot of the work as in um, in poultry farms and stuff like that as well. So they're, they're pretty much the backbone in a lot of these places and in the surrounding communities around Clarkson, Georgia. If you take a wider view there, that results in Georgia being tied for third for the most number of refugees that get resettled annually in Georgia. Uh, there are five other states that also accept about, accept about the same number of refugees. Texas accepts the most. New York, California, and Washington are also big acceptors of refugees. But Megan, part of the reason that we're talking about this is the backlash against immigration generally, largely defined by the politics that Donald Trump thrived on when he won in 2016. Governor Kemp also sort of played with that politics in 2018. What is his, what what kind of message has Governor Kemp put out there on the campaign trail about his view of immigration generally and, and how might that tie into this refugee question specifically? So Kemp had that lovely campaign ad um, where he said that he would round up, quote, criminal illegals um, in his pickup truck. So he definitely campaigned really hard on removing, quote unquote, illegals from the state. Now, we haven't seen a ton of movement on any of these messages that he put out on the campaign trail, but this might be the time that forces his hand to go ahead and make a move on these, whether he was serious about what he said on the campaign trail or whether he just said it to pander to his base. Yeah, and I think this is where you can sort of look at Kemp's messaging two different ways. You know, defenders of the Trump stance on immigration, people like Senator David Perdue, who sponsored legislation that would reduce the overall levels of immigration, they will often say, look, what we oppose is unlawful immigration to the U.S. and we support lawful immigration. The refugee process is a lawful process. It's one established by law, authorized by the federal government, and run through state and local governments and local organizations, and that that is all well and good. Um, but increasingly, you know, be, beyond that rhetoric, you've sort of seen restrictions on legal immigration on top of all of the rhetoric opposing illegal immigration. And so, you know, it's hard to figure out which line there Kemp would be on, but the fact that there hasn't been any movement on him on a major policy priority that is targeting uh, unlawful immigrants um, sort of suggests that this is an opportunity for him to do something where he looks like he's fulfilling a campaign promise, sort of regardless of the specifics. Um, but it's also an opportunity for him to differentiate between legal and illegal immigration in their view. Right. Well, I think the issue is it's like you were saying, he can take the opportunity to differentiate or he can continue to go with what is currently the situation in the United States where people are not making the are, are not mentally differentiating between the two. Um, any sort of immigrant is also considered an illegal in a lot of people's minds right now just because of the political climate that we're in. And so my concern is that Kemp won't take a stance 
on this uh, or or we'll we'll just lump everyone together. So, Kelly Kemp has had this decision on his plate for a little while. The executive order that President Trump signed uh, went into effect in September. Um, but prior to action in the last few weeks, I think over 40 states, uh, some Republican, some Republican led, some Democratic led, had all said that they would accept refugees under this option presented to them by Trump's order. Uh, but what happened in Texas and and what did that spur that might actually take this decision off the table for Governor Kemp? Yeah, so Texas, um, the governor actually denied and refused refugee admissions. So that actually made them the first state to deny um, these refugee resettlement. And so um, basically, I think it was a judge out of Maryland who actually blocked Trump's executive order, which in hand stopped Texas from refusing refugee admissions. So that's important. So it basically put a pause on the executive order. So Kemp doesn't really have to make a decision right now because it's going to turn into a big legal battle where they're going to argue in court whether this should be allowed or not allowed. So I think he's definitely going to wait until after there's a decision on that, just so he kind of is on the right side of history in a sense, where he doesn't say no to refugees and then this judge or the the um, court ruling finds that like, yes, you have to accept refugees um, and so forth. So I think it's interesting to monitor basically how he's approaching this as well. Yeah, it's been interesting that he still sort of won't say either way. Um, I think he has been critical of the timeline that has been out there, although his staff, I don't think, has been very clear about why the timeline that has been reported might be wrong. Uh, that was according to some AJC reporting that I saw. So it's a bit unclear sort of what the next steps are. But Megan Kemp took stands in the Republican primary when he ran for governor that were aimed at uh, increasing the enthusiasm among social conservatives and among his base. Um, you know, the the one that really comes to mind that he acted on last legislative session was the abortion ban um, his views on immigration are another one. But what does Republican politics look like on this issue? I mean, is it is the anti-immigrant sentiment that you see among Trump and his most fervent backers, is that universal on the Republican side that it's just as much of a slam dunk for him to avoid, for him to be harsh on on immigrants and refugees? Or is it more complicated than that? It's quite a bit more complicated than that. I think the biggest piece of the base that's going to be complicated on this issue are the Christian evangelicals, or maybe not e not even just the Christian evangelicals, but just certain sects of Christianity. Evangelicals and certain Christians support refugee resettlement, as I mentioned earlier, because it is the, the thing that their religion teaches them to do. It is the thing that... Um, for there's a certain organization called Friends of Refugees that told the AJC. They say, quote, in Georgia, they are particularly important to some of the state's key industries, poultry, processing, hospitality, manufacturing, and distribution, and others, um, end quote. And they are referring to the refugees. And it's much like Kelly was saying. Not only are these areas that accept refugees the economies are built upon having refugees in the economy, but also as a Christian, one of the things that you are, you, what you grow up doing is you grow up giving to the poor and helping the needy. And refugees, 
fall into that category a lot of the time. They don't have anything. Some of them have the shirt on their back. They came here because they're starting a better life. They're escaping persecution. And a lot of people that are Christian believe that those people should be accepted and helped. Yeah, I think you have that group on the one hand. Um, And it's interesting that that group is probably supportive of Kemp on the harsh abortion ban, uh, but would be also supportive of a uh, more dovish approach to refugees and immigration generally. There was another group that talked to the AJC in some of this reporting on Kemp's decision that said that refugee resettlement can be disturbing to local communities and people can resent that because of the benefits that refugees are getting. Uh, And it goes against a drive to reduce immigration overall. This is sort of the Trump sentiment that you see from this group, Georgia Conservatives in Action. You know, so it's interesting to see how those things might play out. Megan, I wonder how much of this may matter in a Republican primary in 2022, though. I mean, do you think that there would be a movement against Kemp from his right uh, if he doesn't fulfill the most hardline conservative promise on all of these issues? I don't know. I will tell you just anecdotally, the worst argument I ever got in politically with anyone was regarding refugees and quote unquote them being on welfare. Now, granted, that was a misnomer on the part of the person I was speaking with. Um, But there are a lot of strong opinions about this. Um, And so I do wonder if Kemp doesn't quite get this right, if he doesn't get the balance right, that he's going to lose pieces of his base, which as a Democrat, I that doesn't bother me. But um, I'm sure Kemp Kemp's team is running the calculus on this, trying to figure out what the correct move is to keep everyone as happy as possible. So, Kelly, I have a question for you. I know I've already asked you on this episode, but I'm going to ask another I mentioned in you know my spiel a second ago about how I had gotten into the political discussion with somebody talking about immigrants receiving or not receiving welfare. Um, what I do know is that it is different from welfare. What I don't know is how. Would you mind explaining that? Yeah. So um, undocumented immigrants, they don't really receive welfare assistance because you know they're not really approved by the United States. They're undocumented. Um, However, refugees, since they are admitted to the United States and they are accepted in a way and they do receive some sort of assistance um, through the state, they are eligible to get Medicaid and food stamps. You know, they can get jobs because they apply for um, employment authorizations. Um, They can apply for Social Security cards. So they basically have all these identities and they that verify that they're a United States, like they're in here and they're documented um, versus an un- undocumented immigrant. And also when they do have these jobs, they are paying taxes. Um, they do have money that goes towards social security and all these different things to the state and so forth. So that's the biggest factor I would say within undocumented and also refugees. And it's just clarifying what all they do, that they're not just, I guess a Republican talking point that they're just not just freeloading. They are giving back to the state and they are paying their taxes and stuff like that. Well, and I think in the long run, they receive less in benefits from public benefit programs, which they, they do get on the front end when they're coming here and establishing themselves. They receive less in the long run than they give back in terms of the taxes that they pay because their median incomes end up being higher 
than in some places the median incomes of American citizens who live in some of these communities. And, you know, there may be a healthy debate to be had about whether or not undocumented immigrants should have access to some of these benefits, but it's hard to disentangle that debate from a broken immigration system that has resulted in so many people living in the United States without authorization. And you see that to some extent in some plans put out by Democratic presidential contenders where public benefit access, that issue is somewhat resolved by doing immigration reform and creating a process by which people can become U.S. citizens or lawful permanent residents or whatever the status is. Um, but that would basically allow people to become authorized residents of the United States. So that that is not really the debate that is usually had in this context. But if you care about immigrants, whether they're refugees or undocumented immigrants as as people first, um, you know, that's the conversation we really need to be having. Yep. All right. Well, with that, let's move on to our second topic this week. So we are now less than two weeks away from the Iowa caucus, the first contest in the Democratic primary for president. So we thought this would be a good opportunity to check in on the status of this race. Uh, This is something that we haven't talked a lot about recently, but we're really about to get to the point where all of the action is going to happen, where people are actually voting. Um, And last week, we had the final Democratic primary debate before voting will begin in Iowa. Um, So. Kelly, I wanted to start with you on this, and I was hoping that you could just kind of set the table for us. As you start to project how this primary will go, I think it's helpful for our listeners and for observers to understand the landscape of support for each of these candidates that has popped up in various polls, in various states, and how sort of the demographic makeup of a candidate's supporters informs the strategy that they're going to pursue given the states that come first. Iowa, a very white state, is first. New Hampshire, also very white. Second, South Carolina, the first southern state on the calendar, has a large, I believe the majority of the Democratic primary electorate is African American in that state. So which candidates have strengths with which groups of voters And how do you think that impacts their strategy in these early states? Absolutely. So um, I really enjoy looking at the demographics of voters just because we always see national polling of, oh, well, Biden has 23 percent, but we we never know really who is supporting him. Um, And that's where it gets interesting. So um, I'll start off by talking about African-American voters. So South Carolina is a really competitive state. It is third in the primary. And that's where Joe Biden really has the biggest upper hand. You know, him being in Iowa and New Hampshire, he's just trying to get a couple of delegates here and there. He's not super strong in either of them. He's still the front runner, but he really has basically a monopoly in South Carolina. So there was recent South Carolina poll that showed um, that about 43, 40% of African-American voters favor Joe Biden. Um, and on the op- opposite spectrum of that, you see Pete Buttigieg, who's really struggling, and he's been asked about this in the previous debates, is, you know, you have really low African-American support, and you really see that come to life in South Carolina polls. And so the same South Carolina poll also showed that 
Pete Buttigieg is only pulling about 2% support from African-Americans in South Carolina, which is extremely small. It's an extremely small number, and it should be pretty concerning for his campaign, I think. And going back to Iowa, that's the first state. So with that one, you see a different mix of who's the front runner. So it's really Biden, Bernie, a little bit of Pete Buttigieg. It's not like South Carolina where Biden has pretty much a monopoly on, like he's going to get the most delegates. Iowa, you can probably tell that there's going to be delegates split up between all the candidates. Um, It'll be interesting to see Pete Buttigieg and Klobuchar, since they're both Midwestern candidates, how they perform in these states. Because I think that they will pick up a bunch of delegates in Iowa. And same for New Hampshire. New Hampshire, I know there was recent polling that showed that Warren was a favorite in there. Um, I'm not sure if it has switched to Bernie, considering his uh, surge in the polls or not. But I think those will be kind of just like random grabs for delegates. But South Carolina, you'll definitely see Joe Biden picking up a lot of delegates as well from those African-American voters that he has a lot of support from as well. Megan, if you look at this early group of states, what what is on your mind in terms of how once you get past the first three or four states, who might be in the best position to really get a lock on this nomination? Do you think that it's wide open or, or does somebody have an upper hand? I really don't think there is a, uh, a a potential front runner after those those states. I I will tell you that I am really torn on saying this because I'm kind of second guessing myself because part of me really wants to believe that at some part that at some point the Democratic Party is going to come together and truly support someone, but as evidenced by polling and as evidenced by the news within the past couple of days, really since the debate, uh, hello Warren and uh, Sanders. And now Clinton, um, (laughs) there isn't a consensus. And that's so concerning, but also kind of interesting because we still have a field that is very, that has varying opinions. And I I mean, it is to my enjoyment to, to watch these debates and see those sorts of things. So from that perspective, this is kind of fun. From the perspective of the primary is looming ever closer, I'm a little concerned and I don't think there's a consensus. Well, it's yeah, it's been really interesting. I mean, if you're the thing we were referencing, if you uh, didn't happen to open up your Twitter feed today is Hillary Clinton still taking shots at Bernie Sanders. So we haven't actually technically finished the 2016 primary yet. So maybe it's too early to even get <laughs> oh to 2020. God. But I think that to some extent, that wide open nature of this race, even is exemplified by the New York Times endorsement. Um, if you happen to see this over the weekend, the New York Times endorsed two candidates in the Democratic primary, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. And part of the rationale for that endorsement process was they didn't want to pick a side in the ideological fight within the party. But regardless of what side of that fight you're on, whether you're a pragmatist, centrist, incrementalist kind of person, or whether you're somebody looking for big structural change, uh, real upheavals of systemic issues that have long frustrated progressive progress, there are candidates for you on both sides of those divides. The thing is, though, we know that. Like, if you are an observer of the Democratic primary, you know that there is a progressive wing that is being fought out between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, and you know that centrists like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar are trying 
to pull Joe Biden back from being a front runner. So I think when you look at this primary as it progresses, you know, somebody like Biden is in a very good position if they have success early. And that sort of might give you a cue of, are the centrists winning or are the progressives winning? But if Biden doesn't get a hold of the nomination by being really successful in the early states, then it really could be wide open. You know, Nate Silver's uh, primary model, which if you are an election nerd is is worth checking out, says that the third most likely outcome of the Democratic primary is that nobody wins a majority of delegates necessary. And that means you go to the convention without knowing who the nominee is going to be. But it's interesting to note, among all of this, Joe Biden was not the pick from the New York Times. If you were looking for the centrist, it was Amy Klobuchar, who New York Times endorsed. Kelly, do you think that that endorsement matters from a national paper all that much? I'm not sure. I've been debating this since it really came out. I thought it was very intriguing. And also kind of as a female, like they endorsed two women presidents. And that's probably never been done before in history because... It's the United States and Hillary Clinton was the only like front runner really for um, women. So that was really cool. But realistically, I am not sure that it's really going to take away some of Biden's lead. Um, I think Klobuchar, Amy Klobuchar has become more appealing to a lot of voters. And there's been some recent polling that shows that she is a lot of people's second choice, second favorite choice in Iowa. So it's kind of intriguing that she's still only people's second choice, but not necessarily their first choice. So she's a less flashy candidate. That right. That's my perspective. And like speaking for myself, I agree with those polls that Klobuchar is my second choice. I will say that like watching the debate the other night, I found her to be better the longer it went. It's like she needed some warm up time. And so that's just kind of talks that that speaks to how I feel about her, right? Like the more I'm exposed to her, the more I warm up to her. But then when she goes back on the back burner, all of a sudden these flashy front runners come into my view. And I think that that experience is probably not unique to me. I, I agree too. I'm the ex- I feel the exact same way. And I think it'll be interesting since I was the first state and um, she is pretty popular within because she's from Minnesota and, you know, she has that Midwestern politician vibe from her. I think that it'll be interesting to see how well she performs in there and if she can maybe pick up more delegates than she was expecting or what other people were expecting. And maybe if she moves up a couple of points and maybe takes momentum that way, that's the only way I would see her possibly moving up in the polls and in the delegates and maybe taking away some from Joe Biden. If there's more focus on her within maybe even like the news, like C- like TV news, um, like CNN or MSNBC where a lot of voters will get their news from. It does seem like there's a pretty decent possibility that even though we don't know who the front runner is right now or who it might be after the early states, this fight between the moderate wing of the party and the progressive wing of the party may be may represent the two candidates who are the final two in the Democratic primary before you get to the convention. And that's why it was really interesting at the debate the other night that the largest point of contention between candidates was not across this ideological divide. It was actually something relatively personal between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. It was reported right before the debate that in a private conversation in 2018, 
Bernie Sanders told Elizabeth Warren that a woman could not win in 2020 and that Elizabeth Warren, when this report came out, Elizabeth Warren said that she disagreed with that assessment. And that touched off a round of infighting among each candidate's supporters, primarily on Twitter. But it was interesting at the debate, you saw both Warren and Sanders try to dismiss it. They didn't all go all out after each other on that point on the debate stage. Both of them took pains to say, this is not the important issue. This is, you know, I'm not here to fight with Bernie, I think is what Elizabeth Warren said. And then after the debate, Elizabeth Warren makes a beeline to Bernie Sanders right at the end where everybody's shaking hands and, you know, slapping each other on the back saying, great job. And Bernie extends his hand, wants a handshake with Elizabeth Warren, and she very clearly waves it off. And you didn't know what happened if you watched it live, but later the audio came out where Elizabeth Warren said, Bernie, you called me a liar on national TV. And Bernie's like, you called me a liar on national TV. And then Bernie's like, I don't want to do this right now. I don't want to do this right now. Megan, what did you make of that exchange between the two leading progressives in this race? Well, I didn't love that it was a public exchange. That's for sure. Um, It didn't do anything to help the party out because now you've got the Bernie bros versus the Warren, what, Warren Warriors? Do they have a name? Warren Warriors. they have a name yet, but you Warren can name Warriors. them today. Yep. So Bernie bros versus <laughs> Warren Warriors. Um, But at the same time, I do agree as a woman uh, in the workplace or in this political sphere or whatever that it was within Warren's right to call him out and say, hey, you just turned me into a liar. What what gives? Now, there is a massive likelihood that, you know, human memory being what it is, um, that they are both misremembering and they are remembering what they felt, not what they actually heard and not that what was actually said. Um, so they might both be right or might both be wrong, depending on how you look at it. But I really do wish that this had just not been a thing that had surfaced right about now. Well, what do y'all think of this question, though? I don't think anyone has alleged that Bernie Sanders said a woman can't be president or a woman should not be president. And so I saw this argued kind of from two different ways that Bernie was a sexist for what he said, because, of course, a woman can be president, but also that 2016 was actually a pretty good example of the environment created by a candidate like Trump who would capitalize on latent sexism among the voting public and would press the case on that issue and that that that, that would, as a result, make it difficult for a woman to win a presidential election, regardless of whether you think that's right or wrong. I think all of us on this podcast agree that you know, voting on the basis of sexism is is wrong. But that assessment, that analysis, what do you think of that question even being raised? Well, I I feel like the we talk about it all the time, maybe not on air, but it's definitely come up in my circles. Oh, well, I don't think the United States is ready for a whatever, fill in the blank president, a woman president, a gay president, a black president. Um, you know, all of those conversations have been being had for years. Um, you know, the the conversation around Obama was, well, I don't know whether we're ready for a black president. Well, we clearly were, but there are plenty of conversations that said we weren't. Um, and then it's 
those conversations are weighing into people's voter calculus, which is why I think a lot of people who are leaning toward Biden are leaning toward him because he looks presidential. You know, he's not a gamble. He's not a he's not different. He he's a white, straight male who's been part of politics for a long time. And so, yeah, those conversations are happening. And what may have happened is Sanders brought it up in a way that wasn't the most clear or perhaps the most tactful. Um, And then it came out the way it did. Yeah, I agree with Megan as well. So the whole argument of, oh, well, this is different because they're not a white male is extremely frustrating considering we've had 44 presidents who are white males and one black president. And even then there was an entire backlash saying that Obama wasn't an American citizen and all these different things. That just goes to show, you know, throughout history, we've only had one perspective and it's been white males and we've never had another perspective of even a white female president or a gay president or, again, any of these different identities. And it's kind of frustrating that it's just become the norm and that's just become something that is a massive conversation about electability. And at the end of the day, you know, 2020 is going to be Trump versus somebody and people are kind of just resorting to Biden because he's the safe bet because he has the most name recognition and it's not going to change all that much. However, I feel like we have so many qualified candidates who are running for president, um, you know, within these top six. And even outside of that, all these people are really, they have really good perspectives and they want to change things for the better. Um, And I think that should be what it's about, not necessarily just on what's the safest bet. And I guess electability and stuff like that. So I think it's it's a good conversation to have, but people have to understand, I guess, the history and just we need more perspectives, I guess, more diversity within this. So, Kelly, another issue that I think for the first time played a prominent role in the last debate was the issue of foreign policy. This came in the context following President Trump's ordered strike on an Iranian military commander that briefly set off a major escalation between the U.S. and Iran. Um, Ultimately, that escalation really didn't go anywhere. Uh, Iran retaliated against the United States for the strike that killed their military commander, but they did so in a way that was pretty transparently a way to save face and take an off-ramp and not make this even worse. And then Trump did what people who do not want to go to war with Iran wanted him to do, which was allow the de-escalation to happen, basically let it go. Okay, we're done. What did you make of that conversation on foreign policy among the candidates? Was there anyone who stuck out to you specifically? And do you think that any of that discussion may resonate in some of these early contests? Yeah, so I was honestly kind of surprised the way that candidates spun this. Um, It was a very interesting perspective. And it's something that isn't really talked about as much. It's not a pretty headline or anything. Um, But it was basically started, I think Bernie started off by saying this, that, you know, the war in Afghanistan and now the war or possible war with Iran, there wasn't an authorization for the war, which is also the abbreviation AUMF, because it's it's a mouthful to say. And they're referencing the original AUMF, which was created after 9-11. And it basically was an authorization by Congress, which allows the current president, which was George Bush, to use military force. 
as a retaliation against al-Qaeda and the Taliban um, for the acts of 9-11. And so that being said, throughout George Bush and Obama and Trump, presidents have used this authorization to keep a war within the Middle East. Um, and they've used that as also to branch out and to fight ISIS. And that can be problematic because it was originally used for al-Qaeda and the Taliban. It wasn't authorized for use against ISIS. So that basically takes out kind of the middleman of Congress saying, yes, we authorize you to use military force for this reason. And so that was correlated into the Iran conversation saying, well, Trump never disclosed that he was doing this with Congress. He never asked, you know, authorized, got authorization from Congress to do this. And that's kind of where the conversation spun from there. And I really enjoyed this because a lot of other candidates jumped and said, yes, we need a new authorization for military force um, vote in order to be using our military in this way. And it was a really good conversation to have because it's super relevant and it's not something that we normally talk about in day-to-day conversations. Um, it's usually left out in foreign policy as well. So I really enjoyed that. And I was surprised. But kudos to whoever brought it up or the moderators um, for bringing up that question. So, Yeah, I think it put front and center an issue that has not played very heavily in this race. It also gave the candidates an opportunity to talk about foreign alliances and the way in which Trump has eroded those alliances through both the way in which he approached the Iran strike, not involving the international community. A lot of this was precipitated by the fact that Trump exited the Iran deal when many of our European allies wanted to stay in the deal. Uh, But that discussion on alliances was not only limited to to acts of war and, and military adventurism, it was also linked to the issue of trade and the way in which Trump's trade policies have hurt people at home while there isn't necessarily a clearly defined strategy on trade with with other nations. So yeah, I think it was good to have those issues front and center. The thing that I'm interested in is whether or not it'll be all that meaningful. You don't have this this sharp divide between candidates for and against the Iraq war the way you did in the 2008 primary when Barack Obama stood out on that issue. Um, You certainly have candidates who voted in favor of the Iraq war. Joe Biden did when he was in the Senate. But many of them now will try to sort of sidestep the discussion of their vote by saying, yeah, maybe I voted for the war, but ever since I voted for it, I've been supportive of bringing troops home, drawing down these wars, a different kind of foreign policy than than has been prosecuted by the Bush administration, um, which pursued these kinds of wars. So I don't know that it resonates quite as much that it will shape the primary going forward. But foreign policy is the place where the president has the broadest authority. So if you're not talking about it in the context of a Democratic primary or a presidential election, you're really not talking about a big item in the portfolio of a president. So lots to look forward to. We got a little under two weeks until the first vote in Iowa, where we will see how all of these issues 
that we discussed how they play out and whether or not we're going to get to convention in the summer and have a Democratic nominee or not. Um, Also, TBD on that decision on refugees from Governor Kemp. Um, Certainly, that will send a signal about the political calculations that Governor Kemp has in mind, on top of the real human consequences of potentially his refusal of refugees. Of course, all that depends on how that court case we discussed shakes out. But for now, I think we are going to leave that there. So Kelly, thank you for joining the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And Megan, thank you as always. Yeah, thanks for having me back as always. Check out your feeds. Uh, We got other content coming to you this week. I talked with Rod Sellers. He's a candidate for Georgia 11. That interview was posted on Tuesday, so check that out. We're also going to have an interview with Dana Barrett, another Democratic candidate in Georgia 11, so that'll be in your feeds this week. And don't miss a conversation that I had with Jill Nolan. She's a reporter for Georgia Recorder, and we talked with her at the end of last week recapping the State of the State address that Governor Kemp gave, and she has some of the -the on-the-ground insights from her reporting. We're going to be hearing from her a lot during session, so don't miss those discussions. But for now, we're going to leave it there, and we'll talk to y'all later. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.